Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I want to welcome you back to the program again this morning and uh, say from the bottom of my heart, uh, thank you for your very, very positive response to uh, this series that we've been teaching on the book of Revelation. We will probably conclude this teaching within the next couple of weeks because we have now come to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 22. And it's been such a blessing to share this with you. I really believe that God ordained, and I believe I was born to do this, and this uh, particular series that we've done will be made available to you both uh, at least in CD format. Uh, in the meantime, if you have missed any of our programs on the book of Revelation, they are now available on YouTube. You can go there and watch them at your leisure. Everything we have aired to date is there so that you can catch up with us. So many p people are finding us there on YouTube, and, uh, and even local churches are uh, taking their midweek service and pulling down uh, from YouTube one of these uh, sessions and then playing it uh, for uh, their church and then having discussion about it. We encourage you to do that. It'd be a blessing, uh, I believe, to you because I've done a lot of the research for you. Also, uh, our iTunes, you can go to iTunes and, be, and sign up for our podcast, subscribe to it, and the audio will be delivered straight to your uh, smartphone. And I think there's also an RSS feed for it where you can get the audio portions. But when we're finished with this, uh, all of the CDs will be made available. We're, putting, we're going to be putting uh, like three, two to three uh, programs on one CD so you can have all the audio available to you where you can go back through this teaching. I believe it's been revolutionary and it has literally touched people around the globe from, uh, from, from being able to watch this. Thank you for those of you who have been partners with us in this ministry because that's what has enabled us to be able to do that and we are truly making a difference and you are part of that. So God bless you for it. We are coming to the 22nd chapter and I'm going to begin in there uh, today and uh, just begin reading. I have most of it printed out in my notes because I just felt like it would be a whole lot easier for me. But uh, in Revelation chapter number 22 it starts out by saying, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as a crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. Uh, I want to just begin with that and just begin to talk a little bit about this. Once again, as we come to the latter part of this book of Revelation, uh, there are many things that are mentioned in the first part of the book of Revelation that you will see actually uh, come to fruition or come to pass in the latter part. And we will see some of those comparisons, some of the things He promises to the seven churches. For instance, the church at Ephesus, He says to them, who overcome, I will give you to eat of the tree of life that's in the midst of the paradise of God. And one of the things that I'm asked a lot of times, especially since we preach a lot of the book of Revelation as being fulfilled, is people ask us, is Revelation 21 and 22, of course we just concluded uh, teaching Revelation chapter 21, people will ask us, is Revelation 21 and 22 past, present, or future? My answer to that is yes. 
It is all of the above. It is past in that God gave birth to it in the first century, but it has ongoing results just like uh, the city of God uh, in Revelation 21 was not a place but a people. It is an ongoing demonstration of the community of faith, which is the bride, the Lamb's wife. It is the tabernacle of God that is with men, God living and dwelling among us. Several things we're going to see as we uh, begin to go through this, but it becomes very relevant to me when you take it out of the realm of some just futuristic experience and you bring it into an understanding of what I think is powerfully uh, available to us right now. Uh, when you begin to look at this, and I think I mentioned this somewhat in the uh, series when I taught on Revelation 21, that uh, he, he tells them in uh, Revelation chapter 1, let him that's thirsty come and drink of the water of life freely. And uh, I talked about how that when you drink from that water, it's, you know, the Lord said to me some time ago, I did a series called There's Something in the Water. And um, it is available uh, to order on our website or by calling the number on the screen. But I did uh, a series called There's Something in the Water. And what the Spirit of the Lord said to me is, He said, tell my people they've got a drinking problem. And I thought, Lord, uh, what exactly are you saying to me? He said, it's what they're drinking that's going to wipe the tears from their eyes. He says, and God shall, in Revelation 21, and God shall wipe all tears from their eyes. When we begin to drink from the water of the fountain of the water of life, and that's not just somewhere out in our distant future, but it's something that's available now. Listen to what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4 verse 13 through 14, she said, Jesus answered, said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in, will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. There's another scripture from John 7, verse 37 through 38. It says, on that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart or out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. When I think about this living water, now let me tell you when I think about this again, I think about that it's not some physical glass of water, but he's talking about things that are highly symbolic. We, you know, I think in all of the multiple uh, programs that we have filmed, we have showed you, I think, very powerfully that the only way to truly understand Scripture is to compare Scripture with Scripture, to compare spiritual things with spiritual things. When you see Jesus say these words, He's not talking about literal water flowing out of your belly, but He's talking about the outflow of the Spirit of the living God. It will become in Him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And you know, even when Jesus made this statement, it's interesting to me that on the last day, the great day of the feast, one of the things that would happen during this feast that Jesus had attended in John chapter 7, I believe it was the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a ritual of, uh, of uh, uh, pouring out a drink offering. And they would come and they would, uh, the, 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 the priest would step out on a place at the temple and he would take a pitcher of water and he would start to pour this water as a drink offering out. And the moment that priest started to updump that pitcher of water, Jesus stands up and says, If any man's thirsty, let him come to me, and I will give him uh, to drink of the water of life. He who believes on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers 
of living water. Jesus was not talking about physical water that you pour in a cup. He was talking about the water of the Spirit of life, this life-giving Spirit that God was giving to us. What I think is powerfully important to note is that in chapter 22, verse 1, the very, very first one said that this river of water of life was clear as a crystal. There's no pollution in it. There's no wormwood that you see earlier in the book of Revelation of bitterness. There's no waters of mariba, of chidings, and of complaint that you see in the book of Exodus. There's no frogs, no unclean spirit that you saw coming up out of the river of the Euphrates. This river is a pure river, and it's clear as a crystal, and it's flowing out of the throne of God, and it's flowing out of a lamb. You see, when the source of this water is a slain lamb. When the source of this water is the redemptive work of Christ, it flows from a finished work. It flows from the throne. It flows from the kingdom. Uh, one of the things that I want to make comparison to as I, uh, as I come down through this is simply this. If, when you take the book of Genesis, chapter 1, 2, and 3, it starts in, with, a, with God creating a man in His image after His likeness that would have dominion, high as a bird can fly, and as deep as a fish can swim. And he would be to the blue ball called earth, what God was to the invisible realm called heaven. He was God's vice regent in the earth to guard and to keep this garden that God had planted eastward in Eden. And this garden that God put man in, it, he puts him in the midst of this garden to guard and to keep, and then a river ran through it. Hallelujah. I think that's powerful. Uh, thought because uh, when you see Genesis, I believe it is chapter two. I, I, I'll quickly go over there, I think, and grab this verse because it powerfully points out what I'm saying. Uh, hallelujah! Uh, in uh, Genesis chapter two, verse one, it says, "Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had made, and He rested on the seventh day from all of His work which He'd made." God blessed the seventh day and sanctified because that in the, it He had rested from all of the work which God created and made. Uh, when I think thus the heavens and the earth were finished, uh, I see Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. God concludes with a finished work, and He concludes with this finished work in a garden. He has a man in His image and His likeness who is blessed to uh, be a blessing. He blesses them and says, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. One of the things the Holy Spirit said to me a number of years ago, I was actually in Curacao, just the island over across from Aruba preaching, and the Holy Spirit said to me, Tell my people they must become kingdom uh, exporters and not just kingdom consumers. In other words, we have received some things that we must begin to take out to the world. And when I see a river flowing out of Revelation chapter 22, out of a slain lamb and out of the throne of God, I, I see it flowing out of a finished work again. You see, in Genesis, you have a man in his image and his likeness with dominion who is to export and to fill the earth. See, the river ran out of this garden and everything it touched, it parted into four heads, it went into uh, the lands, I mean, there was gold in the land. Some of the things where this river touches, uh, is very symbolic of what I believe this river produces as it flows out of our bellies and as, as we begin to share uh, what God has put within the people of God and the community of faith and the city of God and the bride of the Lamb and the temple of God. All of these things are chapter 21 
and there was a river in that as well, but it began to flow. And all of a sudden, chapter 22 of, Je of Revelation is almost like a repeat of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because in Genesis, it begins with the garden, and in Revelation 22, it ends in a garden. I don't think it's an accident that Adam has a garden, and he turns it into a graveyard. Jesus will take a graveyard, and he'll turn it into a garden. It is not an accident that everything that Jesus does in His redemptive work, He does it in a garden. He prays in a garden. He prays until He sweats. He sweats until He bleeds. He has to pray and sweat, and He has to pray and sweat till He bleeds. And the purpose of that, we don't connect the dots sometimes, but the purpose of Him sweating and bleeding is because if one drop of blood from the divine brow ever touches the earth that was cursed in Genesis. Remember, in Genesis, it was cursed so that man would have to earn his bread by the sweat of his face. And Jesus comes and sweats from his face until he bleeds, and then the blood touches the cursed earth, and it puts the curse in reverse that says you've got to earn uh, your favor. You've got to earn your bread by the sweat of your brow. Because see, in the new covenant, the curse has been reversed. Everything about Revelation 22 screams, there's no more curse. And that's how the, actually the, the, the latter part of this chapter begins to end, is the curse has been reversed. So it is God restoring and redeeming everything back to its original position. So Jesus prays to redeem us from a covenant of labor and sweat and works, and He brings us into this incredible rest and then plants a garden right in the middle of Genesis 3 verse, or Genesis 2 verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And right in the middle of a finished work, God plants a garden and tells the man, all you've got to do is guard and keep what I've already done in my finished work. I think if we fast forward again, we see so many things happening in the uh, New Testament that was happening in the garden. You see, for instance, Jesus again, who is, uh, uh, He is literally praying in a garden. First of all, He prays in Gethsemane. He prays till He sweats, sweats till He bleeds. He puts the curse in reverse that said we must earn our bread by the sweat of our brow. And then you see Him literally uh, in a tomb. He is planted, listen, he, they bury Him, the incorruptible seed of the Word of God, which Jesus said, except the corn of wheat fall on the earth and die, it abides alone. They planted a seed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea in a garden place. And it is not an accident, ladies and gentlemen, that when Mary of Magdala walks down to the tomb of Jesus in John chapter 20, the Bible said that she saw an angel standing at the head and an angel standing at the foot of where Jesus had lain. And what was between these two angels, or if you will, cherubims or angels, was what's called our propitiation. It was literally Jesus was our mercy seat. The word propitiation is the Greek word for mercy seat. What Mary just found was the real ark of the covenant of the Lord, of which the one Moses made was only a shadow. A shadow is from something standing in the light, but if you keep moving towards the shadow, at some point you're going to find the thing standing in the light uh, that uh, is making the shadow. And I believe when Mary comes to the tomb, she sees the stone has been rolled away. That to me indicates or speaks strongly that the stone of the law, the covenant of death, has been uh, dealt with in all of its fullness. It's been rolled away. Not so dead, stinking flesh can get out, but so that the power of resurrection can be released from the lives of believers. 
not only, and I could take a long time to deal with him being a picture of the ark, but when I think of these two angels, one standing at the head and one standing at the foot of where Jesus had lain, I think that it is incredible that when God cast the man and his woman out of the Garden of Eden, He put two angels at the east with a sword that turned every way, uh, not to keep you out of the garden, but to keep the way, to keep the way of the tree of life. And when Mary stoops down and she sees this angel standing at the head and this angel standing at the foot of where Jesus had lain in a garden, ladies and gentlemen, what she just saw was she just saw the entrance back into the Garden of Eden is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and His finished work puts you back in a finished work. And uh, man, you know, in other words, these two angels standing there are pointing at Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and saying, this is the way. Walking in it. This is the way back into the presence of God. This is the way back into the Garden of God. This is the way back into the finished work. And it is not an accident, ladies and gentlemen, that later on as Mary is walking, Jesus appears to her in this garden and He says to her, or she says to Him, she looks at Him and she said, Sir, I thought you were the gardener. He in fact was the gardener and He had just put them back in a finished work and said, all you've got to do is guard and keep what I've already done. I think that's so powerfully incredible. I, I want to make several analogies here. You know, I think it's interesting to me that Adam has a, a garden, and again, uh, you know, he, he, that garden over the history of, 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 of time becomes a waste howling wilderness. I don't think it's an accident that in John chapter 3 and chapter 4, when Jesus shows up, He's coming, He shows up uh, in a wilderness. Once He's baptized and the Spirit of God descends on Him like a dove, when the Spirit of God descends on Him like a dove, the Father speaks out of the heavens and says, This is my Son in whom... I am well pleased. Now remember the first Adam in Eden's misty garden was the first victim of identity theft. The enemy said to him, in the moment you get enough information about good and evil, you can make yourself like God. And he gave birth to a performance-based religious system that says you've got to perform in order to be or like God. But what Adam should have done was turn around and said, I'm already like God and I'm going to live and move out of the revelation of that truth. But Adam believed the lie, lie. he became the first victim of identity theft, and as a result, the garden becomes a waste howling wilderness. Fast forward 4,000 years, Jesus comes up out of the river Jordan, and Father says concerning Jesus, that's my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Immediately, Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now here's the last Adam who now comes on the scene and he shows up not in a garden, but in a wilderness. Why a wilderness? Because that was what was left after the fall of the first Adam, but now we've got the last Adam who is now showing up in a wilderness, except this time he's not going to be the victim of identity theft. I could say it like this, he had life lock, hallelujah. He had, you know, he, uh, he knew his identity. And the moment the enemy says to him, the enemy, the devil says to him, uh, if you be the Son of God, command these stones to be turned into bread. And I think that could be pictured or preached as the stones. Take the cold, hard stone of the law of Moses and get your identity from your performance. But Jesus looks at the, uh, at the devil and says, Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now you've got to remember that the preceding word that just proceeded out of the mouth of God 
was Jesus coming up out of the water, and Dad says, Father says, that's my son in whom I'm well pleased. Immediately now they're in the wilderness there where Adam left off, where Adam became the victim of identity theft. Now Jesus is now there, and the devil says, if you be, command these stones to be turned into bread. And Jesus says to him, this is how I kind of see it. I think Jesus turned around to the devil and said, evidently you didn't hear what my father just said about me. My father just said, I'm a son. I don't have nothing to prove. I'm not proving to you anything. I don't have to do anything to prove my sonship. I believe that when the church comes to the place where we feel like we don't have nothing to prove, we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to come up in the power of the Spirit because sons who understand their identity will come up out of the wilderness, the waste howling wilderness, uh, hallelujah, demonstrating the power of the Spirit because they will begin to flow out of a finished work and out of a garden of God again and a river will begin to flow out of it. I think that is some powerful stuff. I don't think it's an accident that indeed is misty garden that uh, the first man, Adam, God put him into a deep sleep and when he did put him into the deep sleep, he opened his side, brought to him a woman, and on Calvary's cross, the second Adam or the last Adam, the side of Jesus was opened by the spear of a Roman soldier. Blood and water came out of his side, and out of that blood and water was what Ephesians said that he was able to present to himself a bride, not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. Those are powerful, powerful comparisons to me of one garden was the fall, this finished work is the restoration, and the book of Revelation is ending with the curse has been reversed. Now, I'm telling you, I think that's powerful. You know, we say things like, uh, you know, we say things like, you know, I read the last chapter of the book and we win, but I'm going to tell you the way a lot of people preach the last book of the Bible, we don't win. But I'm telling you, Jesus in His redemptive work has put you back in a garden with the mandate to have dominion and touch the nations of the earth. And one of the things that you're going to see is that this is a very relevant thing to the realm of the earth because what flows out of this garden and what flows out of this people who are God's finished work is going to touch the nations of the earth. The nations of the earth are going to be healed by the fruit that flows from this finished work and from this garden of God, from this vineyard of God. And the Song of Solomon goes on to say, you know, it says that you are a garden enclosed, you're a spring shut up. It is so amazing to me as I read the story of Genesis and the story of Revelation 22 that uh, uh, you can almost, as you read Genesis, you feel like, is this man in a garden or is the garden inside of this man? And my answer to that is, it's both. He was both in a garden and the garden was in him. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said, you are God's husbandry. You are God's garden. You are the planting of the Lord, trees of righteousness, that He might be glorified. I think another comparison that I could make in uh, uh, Genesis was that when the woman uh, was deceived by the serpent and she ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent begins to uh, beguile her to do that, the Bible says that Adam was not deceived. And the, and the first Adam, out of rebellion, joined himself to his wife. I can see uh, Michael look over at Gabriel, if you'll allow me just a little poetic liberty here, and say to, he's going to leave us. And I think God probably said, yeah, he's, I think he's going to leave us. And, and you say, well, how did God know? Because God looked at, uh, let, let me just have a little poetic liberty, if you will. I think God probably looked over at Michael and said, it's because it's what I would do. I would leave the splendor of heaven and be joined to my bride too if I thought I could redeem her. 
Now let me just say this to you. The first Adam, out of rebellion, joins himself to his bride, and they both become victims of this death process. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, subjects himself to the realm of death and joins himself to his bride, not out of disobedience, but out of obedience. So the obedience, because of the disobedience of one, many were made sinners, but because of the obedience of one, Jesus has now restored us and rejoined himself to his bride. Adam fell with his, Jesus rose with his. I love that. Hallelujah. What a powerful, powerful picture that is. But everything about this Revelation chapter 22 is if it is the whole new creation. The whole book of Revelation, as you see these catastrophes unfolding, is almost like the old creation in reverse. It is the decreation, or it is the, uh, it is the annihilation of an entire old creation and God giving birth to a brand new creation. That's not just something in our future, folks. That's something that is available to us right now. I am so thankful that we can come to this river of this water of life and drink from it freely. I am thankful that not only can we come to this water and drink it that flows from this slain lamb, he leads us beside still waters to restore our soul. And when he does that, we drink from this fountain, first of all become partakers of this life, but then we become carriers of this life where out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. I don't know about you, but I'm glad there's a river that runs through it. It is a river of the water of life that is flowing out of a finished work, out of a garden of God. Jesus and His redemptive work does everything in a garden to the point where uh, man, when He finishes that work, He puts us back in that finished work, almost as if He hands us a key back into the garden of God and says, listen, I've finished the work. Just enjoy and be a partaker of this life and enjoy the journey living in this garden of God with satisfaction and in a paradise. Eden literally means pleasure. But I'm going to tell you what, God is the source of our pleasure. He is the, the thing that really satisfies us because let me tell you something, pleasure without satisfaction is addiction and only God can satisfy. Anything else is an addiction. Uh, God bless you. We're running out of time. Let me tell you, take a moment to write to us. Call that number on the screen. If you want to ask Jesus into your life and receive this water of life freely, uh, just call that number on the screen. If you want to become part of our uh, gospel revolution, sow seeds into the ministry, call that number on the screen. Go to our website. It is your faithful partnership that has enabled us to take the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of His grace around the world. Come and drink of this water today, and His life will flow in you. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. For anyone struggling to understand John's writings in Revelation, this book provides true, biblically-based answers. Through detailed insights into the letters John wrote to the seven churches of his day, you will learn how to avoid the mistakes of the early church to overcome today's trials and tribulations. This book will provoke you to thought and dialogue, bringing greater clarity and revelation of Jesus Christ.